talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Oh, yeah? Huh? Okay. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles and part two of our discussion of Martin Scorsese's 1976 classic, Taxi Driver. After his failed date with Betsy and his inability to get her on the phone, Travis Bickle decides that his only choice is to confront her face to face. We go back to campaign headquarters Mm -hmm. and we have very similar shot setups. He comes in with this dolly and then we cut to this, his POV as it drives in on them and it is now extremely threatening. Yeah, he's barreling in there. Let's not have any trouble, okay? Why won't you talk to me? Why won't you talk to me? Why don't you answer my calls when I call you? You think I don't know you're here? Let's not have any trouble. You think I don't know? You think I don't know? Would you please leave? Get your hands off. Okay, then leave, okay? I just want you to know that I know. Let's not have any trouble. Please, just leave. This isn't the place to be. And Albert Brooks, you know, yeah. Stands up, tries to take it Tries out. to be the man in the relationship. <laughs> you know, he does well. He I mean, like right. when a crazy man mm-hmm. like Travis Bickle walks in, yeah. that is not an easy guy to stand up to, particularly when he starts to take out and he takes on this karate pose. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> he's ready to take him down. And he's a Marine. A Marine with no hand-to-hand combat. That's That might have been a, a move right there. I'm not a Marine, but I know we've been trained. We got trained in hand-to-hand combat sure. in the Army, but that may be a hand-to-hand combat combat stance for a marine so i think only a marine could tell it was us a yesterday. good karate it, re- it was scary it as was shit just, yeah and then and then what he says next is even scarier you're in a hell and you're gonna die in a hell like the rest come of on now there's a cop across the street you're like the rest of them look i'm calling the cops officer man yeah that is and and the and sybil shepherd taking that in i mean this is really scary it is but at no point is she like necessarily overtly unsettled or scared right you sense that this is a dangerous situation but she's not running behind people and hiding behind people or no. screaming she's she is unset uh, it is shock i think it's shocking that's what i mean it's shocking more than and then eventually maybe later she'll be a little more unsettled by it but this is an interesting moment and i wonder if if he hasn't been calling her if he's never sent the flowers right. is this shocking to her because she hasn't seen him in weeks and all of a sudden he barrels in with this whole right. narrative in his mind that he's created because he's having this psychological break i don't yeah. know i don't know yeah um albert brooks gets him outside starting to calls the cops he really does and he goes away yeah i half expected to see sybil staring out the window at him as he yeah. walked by yeah half did and he says this really weird thing. I realize now how much she is just like the others, cold and distant. And many people are like that. Women for sure. They're like a union. Yeah. <laughs> do you know me, do you know people online feel this way? Oh, about sh- female pundits? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They're unsettling these unsettling people. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing about Travis Bickle, is that he's not alone. Mm-hmm. There are and, and you know there are a lot of travel spickle out there. There are a lot of people who take women rejecting them and create a whole thing about it instead of accepting. Hey, that's just not the right person for me. They didn't appreciate me. They take it as an offense. As just like a, all a re- the others, right? It's like all the others. You're rejecting who I am as a person, just yeah. like all the others did. Yeah, and yeah, it's an um, easy trap to fall into. He ever thought about what it, Martin Scorsese is like in a cab? <laughs> <laughs> We're about to find out. Put the meter back. 
Let the numbers go on. I don't care what I have to pay. I didn't say I'm not getting out. Put the meter back on. Put it down. Put it. That's right. Put it. Put it down. That's right. Why are you writing? Don't write. Put the thing down. Just sit. So he wasn't supposed to play this part. There was another actor who's going to play it, and it, he was in some kind of accident. Oh. And so Scorsese had to do it at the last minute. I can't imagine anyone else doing this. It's so great. He is great yeah. in this scene. Whatever Scorsese acts, he's very enjoyable. Yeah. Quiz show, he is great in quiz mm. show. That's, yeah, he is. Um, I haven't seen that in a while. I like that movie. That's a good movie. Yeah. Um, he is creepy and mm. funny and smiling. <laughs> and, and De Niro's... Uh, completely non-acting acting. Yeah. He's, he's just sitting there and listening in this scene. Again, this is the master class. Mm-hmm. Is watch De Niro take it in and the little things he does and he doesn't mess anything up. Yeah. And what we find out is that Scorsese's character has a 44 Magnum on him and his yeah. wife is up in that second story window. We see her silhouetted and she is with a man that is not him. Do you, do you see the woman in the window? Yeah. You see the woman? Yeah. So I want you to see that woman because that's my wife. But that's not my apartment. And he says some uh, racial slurs about the person who's up there. Yeah. And then he says some pretty horrible things about what he's going to do with his 44 Magnum, which I may or may not play. Probably not. Yeah, let's say not. This They're horrible. Yeah. And uh, But it's an unsettling... Uh, he's really... And he starts to laugh. Mm-hmm. I bet, I bet you really think I'm sick, right? You think I'm sick? <laughs> you think I'm sick? <laughs> you don't have to answer. I'm paying for the ride. You don't have to answer. <laughs> it is really unsettling. Well, no, I think, and this is what people need to understand. If you're, if you're watching this movie, you're a male, and you're watching this movie, and you're kind of enjoying these scenes and laughing along with these scenes... This is real. Now, he may, pre- he may be presenting it in a way that's slightly comical, but there are men who legitimately talk this way, feel this way, act this way. Violence towards women is just one second away from them doing it. So it is comical in the scenes because it's Scorsese with his rapid talk and his nutty stuff. But the shit he's saying is just as toxic as anything Bickle has said throughout the entire movie up to this scene just as it's even more violent because this is an older guy this is a guy who's gotten married this is a guy who seems like he's a businessman he's got a three-piece suit bickle is still figuring out who the hell he is he's young and he's coming out of the military or coming out of the marines coming out of it of war and so uh, the, the parameters are different and so but still what scorsese is saying just in the small scene is very very ugly it's very ugly and it's just unsettling. Well, and part of understanding the man Travis Bickle yeah. is understanding the world that Travis Bickle inhabits. Right. And the world that he's inhabited, what have we seen? We've seen that he's there's common blood on the mm. seats. We've seen this guy in the back of his car is gonna do this horrible thing. Mm. We've seen horribleness. Yeah. And but, that is the world that he exists in. Yeah. And so in figuring out and, and it goes back to, to Betsy, to Sybil Shepherd, mm. is he tries to bring her into his world. Yeah. You know? as dark and seedy. He pretends that he can be in her world, Mm -hmm. but this is the world that he lives in. So the responses to have to this world, they make sense to him. Yeah, 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 they really do. 
And in fact, he's starting to get to a really dark place. Mm-hmm. And when he gets back with the cabbies in the diner and we start having a conversation, he's even more disconnected until finally he says to Peter Boyle's character, whose name, by the way, is Wizard. Wizard, yeah. In the, in the show, hey, can I talk to you? And they go outside. And even as they go outside, there's this weird moment where he mad dogs this African-American guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, stares him down. And it is we- like, almost like he's kind of daring him. Mm-hmm. He's like, he is saying, what do you want to do? To just some stranger who's walking by. There's a real undercurrent and sometimes a very obvious current in a of, number of, of deep racism yeah, in this film. A number of the 70s films. Oh, this yeah. this fear of blackness. This fear Absolutely. because coming out of the 60s and civil rights, black the black communities were starting to feel power in this country, starting to feel representation, starting to feel like they mattered in a way that they hadn't before. It started in the 60s with Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, this whole idea that wait, our voices matter. The older generation that had supported Martin Luther and all that kind of stuff, yes, of course, the church, all that nonviolent, but the younger generation had come along, the Black Panthers, the militants. Yeah. So there was a desire to like, no, you, we ma- don't, you're not going to push us around anymore. You're not going to bully us and keep us, in, keep us in these terrible economic situations anymore. This is a racist society. So then there's fear, right? Then there's fear from the, from the white side that has been so used to running things all of a sudden, they sense fear in the situation, and so you see it throughout these '70s films. We saw it in French Connection with the way Hackman talks to some of those, uh, the, some of the uh, black criminals there. We see it with Dirty Harry with with Clint Eastwood, the way yeah. he treats some of the black criminals in the, in the movie. So there is an undercurrent here, and sometimes an obvious current, as I said, of this kind of racism that was very on the surface in the movies. But I mean, well, how would I say this? Undercurrent in the movies, but very much on the surface in real life. Well, and Schrader uh, wanted. The movie was originally going to be far more racist because Schrader, who says that Travis Bickle is unquestionably a racist, mm-hmm. is that originally the pimp, Matthew Sport, oh, yeah. and all of those guys in the house were going to be African-American. Wow. And Scorsese is the one who said, no, yeah, we can't. Good. We're not going into that. Good. That, that's not what this movie's about. Damn right. And, and Schrader said he was right. Yeah. That's what the, uh, he made the right choice and mm-hmm. this is better this way. Um, so we go to talk to Wizard and this is this moment you, you you mentioned before where he's saying I just want to go out and, and you know like really 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 do something. Taxi life you mean? Yeah, well. Nah, it's, I don't know. I just want to go out I really, you know, I really want to, I got some bad ideas in my head. I just. And you can see the thoughts are already going in his head that he is going to kill somebody. Well, he says, I'm getting these really dark thoughts. Yeah. And I don't know how to stop them. I don't know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really interesting, if you watch De Niro, his eyes never make eye contact with Peter Boyle. Yeah. They're always somewhere else. It's because he's ashamed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's my opinion. I, no, I no, like, I'm not saying. Th- yeah, I, it's, I think it's shame, I, and I think yeah. it's yeah. I, I, I think it's a whole bunch. Because I think of stuff. He, he respects Wizard. We've only had a certain amount of scenes, but I think he respects Wizard. Which why he dragged he dragged. It, it is the one rare moment, Steve, throughout the whole movie where he is uh, the uh, submissive. He's asking for help. Yes, yeah. and it's the He's rare saying, moment. Please, yes, please help he, me. And this is, I think this this is what's so this is the thing that redeems Bickle is that 
he does want a way out. He just doesn't know how to find it because he's yeah. not smart enough. He's not educated enough or self-aware enough to find his way out of this situation. And he's surrounded with people who really don't have the tools to do it either. No, well, and Wizard, who is the wise man of the Cavs, <laughs> yeah, so he speak. says this whole speech about, <laughs> well, you know, whatever you do, that's what you are. Right. You know, if you're a lawyer, then you're a lawyer. If you're a taxi driver, then you're a taxi driver. And then, and then at the end of the speech, he kind of says, so... You know, go out, get drunk, get laid, go do something. <laughs> All the stuff he's been doing already that has not worked. Yeah, and, and I love I love De Niro's reaction. When De Niro smiles, by the way, yeah. it is kind of magical, <laughs> particularly in this character of Travis Bickle. Mm-hmm. And he and for the first, and this is when he does look in the eye, he's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and Wizard's response is, what do you expect? I'm a cab driver. I'm a cab driver. <laughs> you expect Bertrand Russell? Like, <laughs> It's great. By the way, I love this. It just occurred to me now, his character's wizard. We talked about this whole fantasy beginning with the steam. Oh, So yeah. this is, might be all connected here. So, yeah. He is the Merlin. Yeah. He's the failed Merlin of yeah. the story. Yeah. Because yeah, he's a... trying to be a white knight. Yes. Yeah. He's you know trying what? to be I a, a Bickle is. totally, totally holds. And we definitely have princesses who yeah. need rescuing yep. from, from... From the dragons. And from, from the, the dragons, East, yeah. yeah. And then he drives away, and the, there's that great camera POV as it pulls away. Mm-hmm. Um Travis is watching Palantine on TV while, and this is where he does make his cereal with peach brandy and sugar on it. It's weird. (laughs) Listen, when you got to get the booze in you, you got to get it in you. I guess. Um, And I always wonder when he's watching Palantine, what's he thinking? What's going through his head right now? Well, like maybe he's deciding. Already decided to kill him. Maybe, and maybe he's decided this is how I can get famous, or this is how I can make a statement, or be noticed, or be seen, or be heard. And I, and I think as much as he wants to find place, he wants to matter. He doesn't feel like he matters. And so no one seems to see him, you know? And it's so disturbing, by the way, that, you know, six years after this, John Hinckley shoots President Reagan Mm -hmm. to impress Jodie Foster, Mm -hmm. who's in Taxi Driver. Right. And like, and if you look at basically all the presidential assassins, they're all crazy people. Yeah. And they're all loners. They're all loners and crazy people. Yeah. um, With apparently three names. Um, (laughs) Except for Sir Han Sirhan. Who had two names? Fair point. But he wasn't president. But he was a president. That's right. That's right. Fair Um, enough. But his two names are the same. (laughs) Drives by the campaign office, and there is this shot of the desk of of Betsy's desk with the sodas, and then it cut to him. And it is there's something about those two shots cut together that are haunting and disturbing and creepy and powerful and emotional. Mm -hmm. And he's the shark again, circling. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And we have to talk about the editor on this film. Please. Marsha Lucas. Is that she was in many ways maybe the unsung hero of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And she, the editing in this film, this might be one of my favorite editing I've ever seen. Wow. Yeah. And there are two, there are two or three other editors whose name is I, I would have to look up <laughs> who came in because they ended up mm-hmm. having to cut this film in like a month. Which is really fast. But it is, there's something about, because the shots are so odd Mm -hmm. and the way they're put together is so powerful. You know, and all the montage shots and all the kind of just the world of New York and his eyes and how it's it's a really, really well edited film. And editing is hard to talk about because we we don't know what the footage was. Right. Right. We actually don't can't know what most of these choices are, why the shot's there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the shot's there because the camera bobbles right after that moment. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. It's really beautiful editing. Uh, and leaves the campaign offices, and he starts driving, and he almost runs into Jodie Foster. And there's a big musical sting, and there's a girl with her that he almost hits, and we have to talk about her. Because 
She is an actual teenage prostitute. Oh She's my God. 15. And Paul Schrader found her. I don't understand quite how he found her, mm-hmm. but he was talking to her and went, oh my God, this is Iris. And he called up Martin Scorsese. This is after he'd mm-hmm. written the script. And he said, I found Iris. And he put her in a hotel room for the night. This all sounds a little weird. Yes, it does. And then he calls up uh, Scorsese and says, we have to have Jodie Foster meet meet this person. And so Jodie Foster's mom brings this brings Jody to have breakfast with this teenage prostitute, and that is who plays this part in the movie. Wow. Yeah. Very weird, man. Yeah, there's there's some really weird stuff in here. I think there's a lot of shit that went down in the 70s that no one wants to talk about. Well, yeah, and then we say, like, you know, let's leave that back there. <laughs> I don't want to leave the movies. Yeah, true. But I want to leave that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's weird. And and he follows them, and when he's when he's following Jodie Foster and her friend, and we're hearing... Loneliness has followed me my whole life, everywhere, bars and cars, sidewalks, stores, everywhere. There's no escape. And God's lonely man. <sighs> right, and God's lonely man. The other interesting thing about that line is that he thinks he's special. Mm-hmm. He is the exactly. lonely man. Exactly. God's lonely man. And most of these people who do, who slide into this kind of madness do feel this way. Do feel that they're some some kind of special because they think they're more aware of it than everyone else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and he sees who all the scum and the filth mm-hmm. are and right. exactly what's wrong with the world. Right. Yeah. Back in his apartment, he's now got a Palantine poster on his wall. Yeah. And right below that is I need to get organized, which is the joke he made with uh, Betsy. Yeah. Uh, and I think we're going to need to get some weapons. So let's go meet Easy Andy. <laughs> Traveling salesman. So Easy Andy is, this is his first acting job. He's never acted before. Wow. He's a buddy of Martin Scorsese's who sounds like he wanted, they wanted to make a documentary about him. He had been a roadie and a stand-up comic. And even at however old he is, which is probably 30 or something, mm-hmm. he had lived a life. Wow. It sounds like. And he comes in and people were kind of, Schrader was kind of worried. How the hell is this guy who's never acted before <laughs> going to hold his own with De Niro? He's great. He's fantastic. This scene is so weird yeah. as they're laying out a 44 Magnum and a 357 or 38 yeah. snub nose and all these guns. There is something fascinating about the scene. Right. This might be a little too big for practical purposes. In which case, for you, I'd recommend 38 snub nose. Look at that. That's a beautiful little touch. It's nickel plated, snub nose. Otherwise, the same as a service revolver. That'll stop anything that moves. A magnum. They use that in Africa for killing elephants. And he starts to push the drugs and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and the other thing that happens is with each gun, he takes this huge 44 magnum. Yeah. That gun is a cannon. Mm-hmm. And he puts it down, and we see a top-down shot. Right. And then we see each gun goes on this black thing, and each time we cut to it, we cut to a top-down shot. Mm-hmm. And then he gets, I think it's the 38, and he aims out the window. And there's this POV shot of him aiming out the window as he slowly, the camera pans along with his gun hand Mm. until he leaves it on this couple with umbrellas. Mm. There is something really disturbing about that shot today. Mm -hmm. It was probably disturbing in 1976. Yeah, I think it's on purpose. But it is disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm starting to figure out that the top-down shots are done at the momentous moments of his life. Like... Turning points. Yeah, turning points. Yes, getting the job, the date. The date. 
uh, and this moment, and mm-hmm. then of course, and maybe there's another one, but there's a couple more. Certainly, coming. the last one. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and then yeah, as you said, at the end of the scene, once he decides, I'm going to buy all the guns. Yeah, is he said? I love that the the easy Andy goes. How about dope? Grass, ash, coke, mescaline, downers, nebutol, tonal, chloral hydrates. How about uh, uppers, amphetamines? No, I'm not interested in that stuff. Crystal meth. I can get you crystal meth. Nitrous oxide. How about that? How about a Cadillac? I get your brand new Cadillac with the pink slip for two grand. <laughs> this, this is the guy to know. Yeah. And now we go into some hardcore training. He's not doing the drugs. He's not doing the booze anymore. He's eating right. He's working out. And you see that ripped, sinewy De Niro body yeah. of 1976. He's uh, holds his hand over the stove. Ah, and I, it's not faked. Mm. That just looks like a dude holding his hand over the stove. Well, remember, he's a Marine, so he's about to go into war. So yeah. he has to train himself to get into war, just like Charlie Sheen does with, with in, in Apocalypse Now. Like, he's got to right. mentally get ready to go and take Charlie down in the in the forest, or in the, sorry, in the jungle. But like, And we he's, see him firing the gun. They're great shots mm-hmm. of the camera moving in. What we should say about Scorsese is all of this is storyboarded. Every single detail That's he great. has worked out in advance. He, you know, he is a prepared, organized, as much as he's, crazy and emotional in all sorts of ways he knows what he's doing and you can see the construction of these montages are just beautifully done and 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 again we have another top down in here Mm -hmm. where we see all the guns laid out yeah um and then there's this shot he's in the porn theater again and he's aiming his fingers making gun fingers and aiming at the screen and then he's holding his fingers in front of his eyes as he looks at the screen I don't know what it is about that shot, but that's real to me. Yeah. In this way, like I, I don't. Have you ever done that where you kind of hold your fingers in front of your eyes and? Oh know. sure, of course. Like there's just something that's very human mm-hmm. and not staged about that for me. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it's something that De Niro or Scorsese just like went. Yes, this is. We have to do this. Yeah. The idea had been growing in my brain for some time. True force. All the king's men cannot put it back together again. And we see him first. He's drawing one gun, then two guns, then the gun in the back. Then he builds this quick draw mechanism. Um, and you're just going like, what is happening? What is all this for? And, he, and he's putting this cross into the top of the bullet. Mm-hmm. Which I which we had to do research on, and that that it causes the bullet to do form, so it causes more uh, flesh damage. Oh, damn. When it goes into a person. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's a campaign event. Palantine's going to speak. <laughs> Howard Brooks is talking with the mic guy again. It's funny. And uh, Travis walks up to the Secret Service guy. Hey, you're a Secret Service man, aren't you? Huh? Just waiting for the senator. Waiting for the senator. Oh. That's a very good answer. Shit. I'm waiting for the sun to shine. And this scene, this is again where I go, this scene is funny. Yeah. It's funny because you. And unsettling. Deeply, deeply unsettling. Yes. Because Travis is in this place. It seems like he's achieved this place of. I know I'm going to die. Yeah. So I don't really care. Right. He's got this big sort of, all I can describe is like a shit-eating grin on his face. Yeah. And he starts asking him questions and goes, you know, oh, I saw, I think I saw some suspicious characters over there. <laughs> they were very, very uh, suspicious. Yeah. And he goes, 
uh, you know, I think I would want to be a Secret Service guy. And the guy asks his address. And he's really quick at coming up with this completely fake name yeah. and address. Gives the wrong number of digits for the zip code. Yeah. And goes, I was oh, thinking of my phone number. I was thinking of my phone number, which doesn't make any sense at all. Oh, so funny. But a lot of people talk about this in, in police, like cops and detectives and uh, policemen rather and detectives. And also Secret Service people talk about this. Like when people are preparing themselves to do this they test the boundaries of the people that, that right. are going to be in that area protecting. Like they like to almost brag about it, that they're yep. going to do it. Well, he, cause they want to be noticed. That's what he, yeah. I mean, I think him wanting to be noticed is mm-hmm. as important a motivation as anything. Yep. And, that uh, is dangerous of a one. And then he, so he calls one of the other secret service guys over to take yeah. a picture of yep. him and Travis gets the hell out. Yep. Do you think that he was thinking about killing the Senator in this scene? Not in this scene. I think he was casing it. He was casing it. As a military guy would do. Yeah. You survey the landscape. You figure out the battlefield. You know where the ins and outs of that battlefield is so that when you are ready, you'll know what to do. Any case, the security. Yeah, I think that's what's happening. Absolutely. Okay. We have arrived at the most famous scene in the movie. <laughs> Even people who have never seen this film have seen this scene. Travis Bickle standing in front of a mirror. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Oh, yeah? Huh? Okay. And what's really funny is this is not my favorite scene in the movie. Oh, okay. I mean, I appreciate why it's a famous Sure, scene, sure. But I don't understand. I don't quite. I really don't understand why this scene is just so big. Okay. I don't think it's, I don't think it's the best scene in the movie. I agree with you. Uh, and I, I don't think it's, that's the reason it stands out. It stands out because there is um, there's a, a, a kind of subtle badass nature to it. And it's also a moment that all of us relate to where we feel uh, disempowered for lack of a better term in mm-hmm. certain situations and you want to fight back and you want to say you're looking at me hey corporation you take yeah. me you looking at me hey person you're looking at me hey boss you're looking at me like you want to have that moment of rebellion and strength and pushback yep. from the people who you think are abusing you or not treating you well or doing whatever and so he has it but there is what you allude to earlier Steve there's that smile that smirk yeah it's the last like almost last kind of weird charming moment for him because he has that kind of like smile and he's shaking his head and he looks and he's are you talking to me are you talking to me and so the and just the way he delivers it all i think is what makes people enjoy the scene so much the delivery what's going on the smile the smirk and then he the quick look and the idea of a gun like sliding out of probably the first time people yeah. ever seen something like that sliding out of his wrist to be used so quickly yeah you know it, it's unsettling in that way but it's his performance that makes everybody he's love great it. yeah and it's funny as you were talking. It, I think you're. I totally think you're right. And it reminds me now that you're saying that. Mm. In a weird way, with network, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Right. There's a similar sort of fuck you mm-hmm. of this. You can't, you can't push me around anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm the little guy standing up. Mm-hmm. That is powerful. I'm God's lonely man. I'm God's, God's little lonely man. God's lonely man. Yeah. Wow. And and by the way, of course, this is improv. All of that course. was in the script from Paul Schrader was Travis Bickle stands in front of the mirror. <laughs> oh, and wow. Martin Scorsese is kneeling with headphones on right below him, sort of. And it took four or five hours to shoot. And it was, 
you know, Holy shit. De Niro sort of figuring it out as he went along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like I said, among the most famous uh, shots in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then we go into this really weird thing of him standing there and we hear his monologue. Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here is a man who would not take it anymore, who would not let... And then there's a jump cut, and then it starts over. Yeah. Listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Here's a man who would not take it anymore. A man who stood up against the scum, the cunts, the dogs, the filth, the shit. Here is someone who stood up. That is fully Godard kind of moment. Well, yeah. And all of the editors were 100% against it, and they said it's a terrible idea, and Scorsese said, yeah, I love this, by the way. Me too, man. I don't know what it is. I can't describe it. I love it because it makes sense. Because he's a human being who is snapping. So to include his first attempt at a draft of saying his manifesto humanizes him, makes us connect to him more, and it makes us understand this guy who's still trying to figure out what the hell he's doing himself as well. It's a small thing, but it's a fucking brilliant thing yeah. because it it brings us closer to Travis, yep. uh, whether we want to be or not, because we've all had that moment where we say that speech in front of the mirror. We, we don't get it right. Then we adjust. Blah, blah, blah. We've all, That's what he's doing, essentially. He's, and, tr- he's writing to get it right. And there's something about, listen, you fuckers, you screwheads. Yeah, yeah, you screwheads. I've never heard the term screwheads <laughs> as an insult before, but there's something about it that's good. Yeah, like he, it. We take another cab drive through more fire hydrant shooting, and we end up at a market. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Travis goes, it's obvious that he's known at this market and he walks over to get something Mm -hmm. and then the camera stays on him. There's no coverage in the scene. Yeah. And we hear a robbery begin. Right. And it is handled. It's all in one shot. Travis comes back around, sees a guy robbing the store. He draws his weapon. He says something first. He doesn't shoot the guy in the back. No. And the guy turns with his gun and Travis shoots him. Mm -hmm. So a couple things about this. So Scorsese described this scene in the commentary track or something I watched as Travis's first murder. Mm -hmm. I don't think this was a murder. Okay. I mean, just because the guy had a gun and was turning on him. Sure, but he didn't turn around to shoot at him. Wait, how can I say this? We don't know what he was going to do. Yeah, I don't know. But Travis didn't give him a chance. Yeah. So in a way, it's murder. And then something really weird happens. Because if the guy... It's like Greedo and Han Solo. I mean... Who shot first? If Han shot first, man, what do you say? If Han shot first, that's murder. <laughs> well, the guy was coming to take him away. <laughs> I'm not, not going to get us killed yeah, by Star Wars fans. I'm just saying that in this moment, if if he had turned and shot at De Niro first and De Niro shot back, it's not murder. The fact that he says, hey, and he knows he has a gun, so he has the jump on him. Right. The guy turns involuntarily maybe turns with the gun like right. you know in his hand it cocked. very fast it really does yeah. so much so that you don't he doesn't have a chance to respond to anything and the guy shoots him yeah and then things get weirder because yes because he says to the shop owner i don't have i don't have a permit for this yeah. gun and the guy says don't worry about it first of all they're checking to see if he's dead right they have no sympathy for this guy on the ground who we should say is african-american right okay. um and he's a lead pipe yeah, and yeah, and he says, "Don't worry about it." The shopkeeper comes around with a lead pipe. Travis leaves, and the shopkeeper beats him with the lead pipe. Yeah, and says, "I'll take care of it." And we never come back here. We don't know what happened to that guy. Right, it is weird. It is, but the shopkeeper says this happened like five times or whatever. Yeah. So 
He's taking out his anger and frustrations himself. On this which, possibly right, dead Robert. Right, which mirrors, of course, what Travis is planning yeah. to do himself yeah. is to take out his anger on he, the people that he feels have been, in essence, robbing him or hurting him or you know, whatever, threatening his life. And so this is... A, a, my, now, it's an uncomfortable microcosm, uh, because it's supposed to be. Yeah. It's, and this is probably New York at that time as well. This. Yep. These people jumping in at a moment's notice to rob you. They probably weren't cops being able to walk around all the time to protect these shop owners. And these people come over and they're just trying to live their lives and do a business and pay their bills. And they're getting threatened all the time by criminals. Well, and what seems like probably the racism of the shop owner, too. Yeah, sure. You know, well, I don't, we don't know. I mean, we, we don't really know. But the guy yeah. does come out and beat an unconscious or a dead guy with a lead pipe. Yeah. And uh, then we cut to this weird thing, which is Travis is watching TV and he's watching American Bandstand. And the first thing he sees is an African-American couple. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that's on purpose. Yep. You know that. And and I don't know what he's thinking, but he is holding his 44 and he is watching these people dance on this TV. And he just killed this black guy Mm -hmm. in this market. And he's pointing the gun at them. He's pointing the gun at them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And why it's interesting. One of the shots, one of the couples dancing looks like, what's his face? Looks like... um, Sport with the white hat and the thing oh, from notice. behind, yeah. it kind of looks like him. So there's evocative stuff through this shot. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad, and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Steve, and as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. And now we're going to get two things that are kind of uh, juxtaposed together, which is Palantine making a speech mm-hmm. and Travis watching, while at the same time we're hearing a letter he is writing to his parents. Yeah. And it is a weird, weird letter. Dear father and mother, July is the month I remember which brings not only your wedding anniversary, but also Father's Day and Mother's birthday. I'm sorry I can't remember the exact dates, but I hope this card will take care of them all. I'm sorry, again, I cannot send you my address like I promised to last year. But the sensitive nature of my work for the government demands utmost secrecy. I know you will understand. I am healthy and well and making lots of money. I have been going with a girl for several months, and I know you would be proud if you could see her. Her name is Betsy, but I can tell you no more than that. Yeah. Once again, it's all fantasy world. Yeah. 
And it's and the card, the card that he's sending to says to a couple of good scouts. <laughs> There's a lot of weird stuff going on here. Yeah. And as he's looking at watching this Palantine speech from his cab, cop tells him to move along. He moves mm. along. And he sends the card off. He says, don't worry about me. One day there'll be a knock on the door and it'll be me. Mm-hmm. Or maybe there'll be a knock on the door and it'll be someone saying I'm dead. I, that's what I keep thinking. Yeah. Because I don't think he plans on being around much longer. No. He's watching a soap opera and he has his foot on the TV and slowly but surely he's pushing the TV table the TV's on a little bit further, a little bit further, a little bit further. This is another moment that just seems so true yeah. to me. I have done not exactly this, oh, but like this, particularly when I was a kid. Can I break this thing? Oh, testing the boundaries. Yeah. yeah. What if I what if I light this on fire? Right. I was a little bit of a pyro as a kid. Okay. You know, I was experimenting with things. And there's something about the sort of there's no reason to do this. Mm-hmm. This is stupid. What if I do this? And he pushes a little further and a little further. And then it explodes. I love him. <laughs> And then he regrets it. Right. Why did I do that? Yeah. That's just real. There's something yeah. real about that. Once again, he's just pushing the boundaries, man. Just to figure out where yeah, just trying to figure it all out. It sounds, yeah. 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 I mean he, it's a self destructive move because he destroys the television. Yeah, it's his TV. Which brought him joy. Yeah. Or at least a window to the world. And then he goes to try to see Jodie Foster again. Yeah. And he goes up to talk to her. Do you want some action? And she sends him to see Matthew. Yeah. And now we get to actually see Harvey Keitel. He's great, by the way. He is great. Yeah. Scorsese wanted him to play the Albert Brooks character at first. I could see that, kind of. Look, Keitel's a great actor. Yeah. And he said, no, I want to play the pimp who was supposed to be African-American. Because he had seen this pimp that was this guy. Oh, wow. And he said, I want to do this. Yeah. It is a crazy character he's playing. Mm-hmm. Officer... I swear I'm clean. I'm just waiting here for a friend. You gonna bust me for nothing, man? I'm not a cop. Then so why are you asking me for action? Because she sent me over. I suppose that ain't a 38 you've got in your sock. 38? No. I'm clean, man. Shit, you're a real cowboy. Then he says, I I once had a horse on Coney Island. She got hit by a car. That's so <laughs> random weird shit, what this man. stuff means. And then we get to the stuff that is really disturbing. Because mm-hmm. he says she's 12 and a half and you can do anything you want with her. Yeah, man. This is fucked up in 1976. And this is really fucked up today. Yeah. I mean, and this is an issue. This is the thing. I've been thinking about this in something as something we, we're going to have to talk about on the cinephiles for a long time, which is... Should movies present the real world, horrible things included, Mm -hmm. or should the movies present a world that we aspire to? And at what point are things too real to be in the film? Because child prostitution is real. That Mm -hmm. really happens. It still happens to this day. And in a horrible thing. And there's a sense of like, I don't want Jodie Foster to be playing this part. I don't Mm want to, you know, this is not, we shouldn't be showing this, mm-hmm. you know, and yet, and then there's another part that's like, no, yeah. we, we have to show these things. Well, look at Natalie Portman in The Professional. 
how that's much, a really disturbing. How much was she exposed to at such a young yeah. age, and does this affect her? Right. Um, because I hear some pretty from friends who've worked with her on sets, some pretty insane stories about yeah. her behavior. So it's like, okay, how much of that is? Because, and then Jody too. Jody Jody counts Mel Gibson as one of her great friends. Right. This is a very unstable person who has had numerous incidences of of being violent, verbally abusive, racist, all these kinds of things, yet she always defends him. Right. What is it? You know, and so there's there is being exposed to the harder edges at a younger age, is that does that damage you or affect you in some way well, where you think this kind of behavior can be forgiven so easily? Well, and someone watching this movie in the world mm. and they see a Travis Bickle character or they see this teenage prostitution yeah. or they see a Harvey Keitel character and rather than going, oh, that's terrible, they yeah. go... Oh, I like that, you know. Oh, right, you know that that because, like, mm-hmm. for instance, if you have people smoking in a movie, yeah. And listen, I'm going to just say, smoking frequently looks cool in movies. Yes, of course it does, and that makes people more likely to smoke. Right. So therefore, you don't put smoking in the movie. You know, like this is this weird thing of are we supposed to be modeling great behavior, mm-hmm. or are we supposed to show true behavior? Mm-hmm. You know, and it gets complicated. It feels like a Patreon discussion. Oh, maybe this is a good mm-hmm. a good discussion for Patreon. So we maybe get, we'll, we'll put a pin in this. Yeah, we can't get too deep into this one here. Um, so he goes to talk to Matthew, and Matthew says, okay, it's." he says how much money it is, and I'm going to pay it. Mm-hmm. And then he goes with Iris to this building, goes into the building, a guy charges him some money for the, for the room. Creepy fuck. Yep. And by the way, a lot of the movie was shot in this building. This is one abandoned building that they took over. And so Travis's apartment is in here. Iris's apartment is in here. They built other little things in here. They started tearing apart parts of the building Mm -hmm. to shoot stuff. They use this building a lot. And we walk into the room. He's reluctant to even walk into that room. Yeah. He definitely is uncomfortable. And the first thing he's asking her is, are you really 12 and a half? She doesn't want to answer. No. She's kind of... She's kind of all business. Mm-hmm. So, mister, it's your time. 15 minutes ain't long. And she wants to get right to business. Yeah, just to get it over with. And it is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And by the way, what they did, so Jody Foster, it wasn't legal for her to do some of the scenes. I'm sure. That's her older sister. She has a sister who's, 16, who's six years older, who's 18. So for anything where it's suggestive, where she's unbuttoning his, his pants or where she's doing things, those are mostly shots of Jodie Foster's older sister. Wow. Yeah. And Jodie wasn't in the room. Good. Um, yeah. Doesn't that make you feel a little yes. bit better about it? Uh, he finally gets that her real name is Iris, and he she keeps trying to get undressed and mm-hmm. do her job, and he keeps saying, don't do that, and he tries to remind her of this night where she got into his cab. Yeah. When you remember me? You mean, remember when you, you you got into a taxi? It was a checkered taxi. You got in and that, that guy Matthew came by and he said he wanted to take you away. He pulled you away. I don't remember that. You don't remember any of that? No. Well, that's all right. I'm going to get you out of here. So we better make it or Sport will get mad. And he again, he has to stop her and stop her. And he says, I want to help you. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want his help mm-hmm. at the beginning. And it's an interesting thing of going, when she says, I don't remember, I must have been stoned, I don't know if she remembers or not. Mm-hmm. And when she says, I don't want your help, I don't know what she wants. She is a hard character. Iris is yeah. tough to figure out. Yeah. Um, and, and this is part of what we're going to get into, is part of her doesn't want to leave this life. Mm-hmm. And part of her, I think, really, really does. Yeah. 
the hell's the matter with you? You don't have to make it, mister. God damn it, don't you want to get out of here? Can you understand why I came here? I think I understand. Uh, I tried to get into your cab one night, and now you want to come and take me away. Is that it? Yeah, but don't, don't you want to go? I can leave any time I want to. Well, then what about that one night? Look, I was stoned. That's why they stopped me. Because when I'm not stoned, I have no place else to go. Which a lot of people will get into this world feel. Yeah. You know, for whatever reasons, their parents reject them or don't understand them or um, just don't speak their language in so many ways and don't have the ability to speak their language in so many ways. And so they rebel and leave. And, you know, sex was only the, it was the only form of acceptance. A lot of these kids are uh, emotionally and physically abused, sexually abused by their parents, by family members. I, Brother, I've dated three or four women who've been abused by their uncles, their fathers oh. and um, brothers. The so, numbers when you see the statistics are yeah, so high. It's insane. It's terrifying. Right. Well, and, and, and then there's also the thing of maybe they would like to go back, but with everything they've been through, they don't know that this, they would be taken back. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And, and he says, you know, well, I guess I tried. And she genuinely, I think says, yeah, I understand. And it means something, really. Like, she actually appreciates that he tried, and then they make a date for breakfast. Well, this is th- that's interesting about Travis Bickle, isn't it, brother? He His earnest, even if he's clumsy, awkward, or too bold, or too aggressive, he's earnest in a way that's somewhat... F- uh, n- How can I say this? Uh, noble, but clumsy. He's I, n- I agree. Right? He's noble, but in a way that... That is not a standard nobility. It's an unco- it's an unsettling nobility or clumsy nobility. Well, I mean, honestly, he's crazy. Yes, but he is trying to do the right thing. Yes. And the other thing I think that's is that I think he is more himself with Iris mm-hmm. than he is with Betsy. I think the person he's presenting with Betsy is well, is right. much more of a facade. Yes. Than he is, particularly when we go to see them at breakfast. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and by the way, before he goes out, he gives the twenty crumpled twenty dollar bill to the guy for the room. Yeah, and it is there's one shot where he's on a dolly, and so he's just moving, kind of floating down the hallway, and the hallway <laughs> is really dark. The shot there's a shot kind of looking down the stairs that's mm-hmm. very reminiscent of Kane. Oh yeah, uh, looking down the stairs with um, Boss Jim Gettys. Yeah, and then there's just deep dark shadows. The guy disappears in the shadows, and what Scorsese says is. A lot of this is shot like a horror film. Yeah. And this is very much, very horror. Of course. Of course. And then we go to breakfast. And Jodie Foster in this scene is bright and funny and seems very untouched. She's wearing these funny glasses. Mm -hmm. And she seems very untouched by what's been happening with her. Yeah. Um, And you can see how young she is. Her teeth are still kind of coming in. Yeah. Freckles on her face. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. The way she's putting jelly on her toast. So that is something that the actual prostitute that she met, that's what she did when she had breakfast with Jodie Foster. Oh, really? That's where that came from. (laughs) From that. So. Brilliant. And it is a weird, it is a weird moment because she puts sugar on the jelly. Mm -hmm. It's a very strange moment. Uh, and and apparently, so when De Niro met Jodie Foster, he took kept taking her aside and go, let's rehearse the scene. They did it over and over wow. and over again. And Jodie Foster said it was a real acting 
class. I'm sure. Like one of her great acting classes. And what they did it so much that then he started to throw out different lines. Mm-hmm. And and she the lesson she said she learned is that you can only improvise when you know it so well that you're ready to expect anything. Of course. And 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 in this scene, there are lots of things. You see her reaction mm-hmm. when she laughs. Like, I don't know who's weirder, you or me. <laughs> like those are some of those are improvs that are happening within the scene. That's great. Are you a narc? Do I look like a narc? Yeah. <laughs> I am a narc. <laughs> God. I don't know who's weirder, you or me. I don't know who's weird or you or me is so <laughs> fun and yeah. light and real. Mm-hmm. It's a really good scene. But he is very judgmental of her. Like, Hey, I'm not square. You're the one that's square. You're full of shit, man. What are you talking about? You, you walk out with those fucking creeps and lowlifes and degenerates out on the street and you sell your, sell your little pussy for nothing, man. For some lowlife pimp. Stands in a hall. I'm the I'm square. You're the one that's square, man. I don't go screwing fuck with a bunch of killers and junkies the way you do. You call that being hip? What world are you from? And that's the thing is that Travis has a view of the world that he wants to shove other people into oh, yeah. and make them adhere to that may not necessarily be true, but in the end, which we'll talk about. It's a very interesting ending, man. So but anyway, this well, scene and, is just and to same, be clear. Yeah. He's right in this. I mean, like, she's 12. Right, but if she her parents, should not be doing this. But if we don't know if her parents were abusing her sexually, so we he may be forcing that. her back into a terrible thing. Well, and she keeps defending. Well, she says, I can't go home. They don't understand me, man. They don't care about me, man. Well, and she says the sport really cares about me. Yeah. He really likes me. What, and, yeah. and, and, and Travis says he's the scum of the earth. Right. I mean, like, his anger, the most kind of nastiness we see come out of him is mm-hmm. really coming out of him talking about sport. Right. Yeah, and and the thing is, how many of us haven't been in a situation where we see a, a you know a female friend of ours or someone we care about in a relationship yep. with a bad guy, and we try to talk them out of it and make them aware of how they're being mistreated, uh, and vice versa. You, you, if you have a male friend who's in a bad relationship with a with a woman who's mistreating them, you try to get them to see what they're doing, the pattern of mistreatment, but you're not going to see it. And it's, and a lot of uh, women who get into prostitution at a young age. This is how pimps do it. They remove, oh, yeah. they turn, it's almost like a cult. They remove your identity so that your only identity is connected to them and they are the only ones that can make you feel wanted or important in the world. Well, and that's exactly where we're going next yeah. because Travis is going to be outside in the cab and this is really the only scene in the movie where we're not with him. Yeah. And and the way they get around it is they say, oh, he's outside looking in. Right. Uh, but we're going to see Harvey Keitel and Jodie Foster and she starts with, I don't like doing this. And he, it is the seductive, really creepy, upsetting scene to yeah. me mm-hmm. where he says, no, baby, if you liked it, then you couldn't be my woman. Oh, man. That is, that is fucked up. Everything he does is psychological warfare yeah. on a young child yeah. with low self-esteem. So here's what's weird. This is what Scorsese says about the scene, which I couldn't just disagree with more. Yeah. He said, and this scene's not in the script. Harvey Keitel wanted to do this scene. This is his idea. And Scorsese wanted to do this scene to show that uh, Sport really does care about Iris and that he doesn't beat her or hurt her. And I'm like, that is not what this scene is showing me at all. Not at all. It sees what you just said. This is right. psychological warfare Absolutely. to control a child. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's oh, and this is we this has come up on the Cinephiles a few times where it's yeah. like what the director or the writer thinks is what we're getting. It's not what I'm getting. No. 
Um, it's seen. This is among. This might be the most uncomfortable scene in the whole movie for mm-hmm. me, even more than the violence. <laughs> right, because she starts out by saying she doesn't want to do it anymore, yeah. and if he really loved her, he'd stop making her do it. And one weird thing is, he puts a record on and yeah. he puts the needle on the record, mm-hmm. and what plays that same Travis Her- Bernard Herman yeah, theme? Yeah. Apparently, the album came out before the movie came out, <laughs> and, and, and Sport went out and bought it. I guess it's very strange. Yeah. And then at the end, he ends with him saying. You know, at times like this, I know I'm unlucky, man. Oh, man. And then they kiss. Yeah. Ugh. Very creepy. Uh, this is a 12 and a half year old child. Yeah. Right? And we immediately have a hard cut to him training with a handgun with these jump cuts coming in and these shots of these targets. And it is, re- we feel the move. Now, we're, we're, it's really propelling us yeah. towards something. Mm-hmm. Um, we see he burns the flowers. He's sharpening the knife. He's typing the knife to his boot. He writes a letter to Iris and he sends her the money. He says, dear Iris, this money should be enough for your trip. By the time you read this, I will be dead. Yeah. So we're, we're getting there. What's the point of an Iris in a camera? Ooh, it opens and closes for light. I mean, okay. yeah. Or an iris in your eye. I mean, sure. that's, that's where the term comes from, is okay. from your eye. Um, hmm. Yeah, interesting. She okay. may be his way out, his light. Maybe. Hmm. Now I see it clearly. My whole life is pointed in one direction. I see that now. There never has been any choice for me. Palantine's in a crowd. We're back at Columbus Circle. Albert Brooks introduces him. Travis gets out of the cab. We don't see his face yet. <laughs> uh, we see him through the crowd. Again, no face. He takes a pill, and we see him with that mohawk. Oh, infamous mohawk. Yeah. And by the way, it's a bald cap, which I didn't realize. Oh, That's really? Not, he didn't shave his head. But his hair is underneath that. <laughs> That's it's a really awesome. good one. That's awesome. And he looks really creepy. And I yeah. love that he's smiling and clapping mm-hmm. at the speech. And again, we're in this. This guy knows he's going to die. Yeah. Like, he's just... His life is over. Secret Service is scanning the cloud. The fu- the speech ends. Palantine starts to exit. Travis is moving forward. He's smiling. Yeah. He reaches for the gun, and they point to him. They spot him. So is he reaching for the gun? Why doesn't he use the gun that's in his... So they wouldn't catch that. But why does he mm. reach the gun that's inside? Is that's he really question. reaching for the gun, or is he trying to, like, once again, do a dry run and see how far, how close he can I get? thought he was going to kill him. Okay. There. That's fair. That's what I I'm thought. I'm sure it's a, fa- it's a fair assumption to make, obviously, because he's reaching in. So. I mean, my, my assumption is he wants that big forty four. Yeah. Unless did he leave? He didn't leave the forty four. He didn't. He didn't shoot the guy with the forty four in the um, market. No, I think that was no. He, and he leaves the gun. Yeah, because he the guy it, in the yeah. market takes the gun. He takes that gun as it's a self defense thing. Yeah. yeah, so that um, Travis doesn't get in trouble. And anyway, they spot him. They run after him. The mm-hmm. Secret Service falls down, and he manages to get away. Yeah. Um, and here's the next thing that. Uh, so you remember I said there's this quote from Schrader that I loved. Oh yeah. So the first the quote started with the girl he desires he can't have, and the girl he can have he can't desire. He fails to shoot the father figure of one and shoots the father figure of the other. Mm. Yeah. He wants to make the Madonna into a whore and the whore into a Madonna. Interesting. I'm like, well, that's that says a lot about this movie. Yeah. Because now he's going to make the he's just failed to shoot the father figure of one. So what's he going to do? He's freaking out in his hotel yeah. in his apartment. Rather, he goes back to his apartment. He yeah. takes some pills and then he heads out back to Keitel. Mm-hmm. Keitel's making some kind of deal in the corner. Travis pulls up in the cab, driving fast, pulls over in sort of a crazy way, walks across the street to Keitel. Hey, Sport, how you doing? Okay, okay, my man. How? Where do I know you from, man? 
because it's obvious something weird's going on. Yeah. And one of the things that Nero, I think, does better than anybody else is the pause. <laughs> is he's not answering in the correct rhythm. No, you're right. It's really weird and awkward. And this yeah. is, do I know you? Do I know you? How's Iris? You know Iris? No, you know I don't Iris. know nobody named Iris. Iris, come on, I got it, man. You don't know anybody by the name of Iris? I don't know nobody named Iris. And then he, Kaitel flicks a cigarette at him. Yeah. Kicks him in this weird way. Yeah, because he's something about, oh, you got a gun? He says, do you got a gun? Yeah. Yeah. And then pulls out a gun and says, suck on this and shoots him in the belly. Yeah, man. And suck on this is in, it was in the script. And oh. uh, and Scorsese and De Niro just loved suck on this. <laughs> but then it's De Niro's idea that rather than going straight into the building, that he walks over and sits on the stoop. I love that moment, Steve. There's some about it. It's very real. It's real. He's yeah. he's like the black guy he kills in the in the convenience store is a spur of the moment thing. This is planned out. Yeah. Therefore there's more responsibility here in his right. mind. So when he shoots him, he is he has finally made a decisive he's in this moment. A decision yeah. of what to do with his life. He has made yeah. a proactive decision, spending the whole movie pondering what to do. He has finally yep. done a proactive decision straight up that he planned out, shoots him, sits on the stoop to kind of take a moment to understand of what he's doing and if he's going to keep going. And if he's going to keep so I think in that moment, he's contemplating, I can stop right here. I can stop yep. right here, get in the cab, get the fuck out. No one's going to know. Yep. And then I think, he, then boom, he just no, says, I, no, I have to finish this. He goes into the building. Yeah, man. And... And this action sequence, first of all, is really, really hard to cut. Yeah, I'm sure. Really hard to cut. Very hard to shoot. Um, they All the editors worked on it until finally they still couldn't get it. Mm-hmm. And who comes in to help finish editing this scene? Steven Spielberg. Oh, what? Spielberg comes in to help Spielberg? edit Spielberg? Yep. Spielbergo? Yep. I don't believe it, man. That's what that's the legend. Mr. Disney? Yeah. Mr. Mr. Feelgood? This is not his kind of wow. movie. But you know what? He's a great craftsman. Well, of course he understands he is. film. First guy comes in, which is the guy that brought him to the room. Mm-hmm. He shoots his hand off or shoots a bunch of fingers shoots off fingers his hand. Up, yeah. It is a brutal shot. And, and I have to talk because the makeup guy, whose name I don't remember off okay. the top of my head, is fantastic. And uh, he described how you do these things. is like, for this, if there was more room, if you're not in a narrow hallway, you would attach like fishing lines to the fingers and you would pull them off. Right. But they couldn't do that because there was nowhere to get close to it. So they had to build a whole device, build a squib into a wax hand oh. and actually blow the fingers off of this guy oh. whose hand is down in his sleeve. Jesus Christ. And then and then Travis gets... He's shot in the neck. Yeah, he gets shot in the neck next. Because Kaito They had to build in. a completely new mechanism mm-hmm. for the to, the blood because it keeps bleeding out of the neck. And yeah. then, of course, what you have to do, whenever you're dealing with things like blood, is you always have to match it. So you're constantly shooting Polaroids to see how much blood is out at this moment, so that you can pull out a shirt. Oh, now that shirt has too much blood on it. We need a blood with only eight in- <laughs> shirt with only eight inches of blood. Um, and who shot him in the neck? It's Kaitel. Kaitel. And he shoots him again. Right. Yeah. And we also see upstairs, Iris is hearing these gunshots. Yes. Yeah. And he shoots, because uh, he's angry, he shoots Kaitel twice to make sure yep. he's dead. Yep. Then the old the old guy with the, he's still, still there. At the, still up the stairs. Yeah, shoots him. Shoots him. And uh, and then the guy still comes up the stairs screaming at him like, you son of a bitch, you right. son of a bitch. Well, and that's when he gets shot in the arm. <laughs> right. And he turns around and shoots this guy in the face. And the guy we see who shoots him in the arm is the same guy who's just talked and gotten money from, right. from, from Kaitel. And we yeah. see the guy had a gun because he pulls his, pulls his suit 
jacket, the side of his suit jacket back to put the right, money back did. in, and you see the gun. Saw the gun. So in my mind, I thought he was an undercover cop who was using this oh. pimp to have sex with these underage girls because he's a sick fuck, which happens sometimes. Sure. Some of these police guys are that way, criminals too. Like it's just there, the seedy six underbelly. Six fucks are everywhere. Yeah, yeah, six fucks everywhere. Not in the cinephiles. No. no. <laughs> Well, no, um, and he, then the the old guy's still clamoring still to him. Coming, yeah. He shoots this guy in the face, and the way they do that is they have little blood pockets built up around his face, right. connected with um, fishing line that are going off in different directions. And apparently, the guy gets all rigged up, which takes like three hours, and he's got little fishing line taped to his face. And his girlfriend comes up and goes, "Oh, you got a hair out of place," and reaches up and grab one and starts to pull it, and they go. Oh my god! Stop her in time because what they're doing is guys off camera pull these things, yeah, and that makes the face wiggle and then the the blood come out. <laughs> I just I just love practical effects. They're kind yeah. of fascinating. They're really smart people to figure out how to do them. That's incredible. Um, um, and yeah, and then he's that guy is still coming after him. <laughs> charges up up the stairs as Travis gets to uh, Iris's room. Yeah, he tackles him. Yeah. And he pulls out that knife that he had in his boot, drives it through his hand. Crucifies him almost. And basically, and that that one is with a, it's a knife with a retractable blade. Right. It goes on one shot. And then we cut to the shot of the blade coming out of his hand. Yeah. And Jody's yelling, don't shoot him, don't shoot him. Travis shoots him. Mm-hmm. And then what does he do? He takes the gun. Shoots himself. Tries to shoot himself. Tries to shoot himself. Yeah. Click. Click. He was going to kill himself. Well, and this goes to like this why watching this movie today, you know, in 1976, there hadn't been all of these mass shootings where people kill a whole bunch of people right. and then kill themselves. Right. That hadn't happened yet. Now this happens all the time. Mm. I mean, it was tragically. And one of the things that uh, this is a slight digression or is that one of the things they've talked about in terms of why are we having so many of these mass shootings is this idea of copycats of yeah. once you see that such a thing is possible then that's in your mind as a thing that you could do and there's like there's this yeah. famous study and thing that happened in indonesia there was this rash of suicides in the 80s and that and it be, they became very publicized and that more and more people started committing suicide which they had never done before and when they stopped broadcasting the news of suicides then the suicide rate went down wow because people got stopped seeing it and i think about travis bickle and then I think about what's happened in the world today, and I'm not blaming what's happening in the world today on Travis Bickle. But no, but I would blame them. I would absolutely blame newscasts and media for uh, sensationalizing this kind of stuff. Absolutely, because if you are the Travis Bickle of today, you are disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. You're lonely. Mm-hmm. You're having mental health problems. You're, you know, and you maybe you've had terrible experiences in your youth, and you're going, "What do I do?" Right. And you see constantly this barrage of people going into a place with automatic weapons and then killing mm-hmm. themselves or being killed by police. Yeah. Oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. Right. You know? And then, and of course, that's what happens the next moment. And this shot, I think this might be the most intense shot of the film. Mm. The police come in in slow motion, and Travis Bickle raises his bloody finger to his head and pulls the trigger. You know, gun finger. Yeah, I love that sound. It's, it's amazing. And we should say, by the way, the sound design in this movie is fantastic. It really is unbelievable sound design. And the sound designer went on the next movie he did after this is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which also has unbelievably great sound. Maybe they met on the set. Kind of different. Kind of different movie. (laughs) That's kind of different. Um, The blood-soaked fingers are everything, though, dude. Man, such a great touch. And then what? And then the next shot is, I think, one you were referencing before, Mm. is we have this top-down shot 
looking down at the scene in slow motion as it moves out. Yep. So a couple things about this shot. The first thing is, is they had been prepping for this for weeks. And what they did, because they're in this abandoned building, is they literally cut through the ceiling. They cut through structural beams. Wow. And so the building is starting to fall down <laughs> because of them destroying it in order to get this shot. And then because of the child labor laws, they had gone over. So they're running out of time. And to shoot this scene with Jodie Foster, they only had 20 minutes. Wow. They shot this in 20 minutes. Holy shit. Buildings falling down around them. Jodie Foster has to go. And it yeah. is a remarkable shot. Yeah. As it, move, it moves out, we go down the stairs, we see the results, we see the guns, we see the bodies, we see the blood. We go outside in this world that's where the police and mm -hmm. press and people are surrounding to looking at this moment. It is a very slow exit from a very horrific scene. Mm -hmm. And then the movie goes in a direction that is so surprising. <sighs> I, I, it's, I remember when I saw it the first time and I went, what? Yeah. Which is that he's a hero. It's a fairy tale ending. Yep. To this fairy tale. Kinda. Yeah. Yeah, there's newspaper articles about this hero taxi driver. And we hear this letter from Iris's parents. It's such a sweet letter. Thanking him. It is really sweet that she's back home and then we see Iris's parents, her. but they're like super old. Yeah. They're not like in their forties. No. They're people in their sixties almost. They're clearly people of, you know, simple people. Yes. And they write a really nice it's a sweet letter, man. Letter to him. I almost got emotional listening to that. Yeah. Because the guy says, we can't afford to come to New York anymore. But yeah. if you ever find yourself in Pittsburgh, you'll be more than a welcome guest yeah. in our home. It's very and sweet. They thank him. And then and then we're back to the cabbies. And there's Travis. Right. Looking okay. And he's hanging out with Peter Boyle and the other guys. They're still and, calling him killer, which is so weird. It's weird. Yeah. And they say, you got a fare. And he gets in his cab and he starts driving away. And he's yeah. kind of looking in the... Mirror, and we hear that great Bernard Herman saxophone, mm -hmm. and we hear "Hello, Travis." Yeah, and there in the mirror is Betsy. Betsy, beautiful shot mm -hmm. of her in the rearview mirror. And what's so interesting is is they have a really nice conversation. Yes, but a conversation where Travis is in power. Yeah, for the first time ever, he's. Peaceful. He's almost calm, He's and, calm peaceful. and peaceful. He's got the upper hand in a way in the situation. He doesn't want anything from her. No. He's not trying to get her. He's not nope. angry at her. He doesn't. He's just like, no. She asks about what happened because yeah. she read about it in the papers, of course. He's like, oh, it's not a big deal. He's very magnanimous. Yeah. You know, the papers, they, over, they make these things bigger than they yeah. actually are. And then he lets her out. Yeah. It drives her home, right? Drives her home. She gets out. Yeah. She walks around the mm -hmm. driver's side window. Mm -hmm. There's a pause, almost as if she expects more from him. Yes. Like, yes. I think she she would have continued this in mm -hmm. some way. Mm -hmm. And she says, what do I owe you, finally? And he drives away. Well, he puts the thing down. He says, don't worry about it. Don't and worry about it. drives away. He drives away. Yeah. And then we have, so, and we kind of go like, oh, he's... Okay, I guess Travis is okay. How odd. And then there's this moment where there's this musical sting, which I'll tell you about in a second. Yeah. And he jerks his head. You see the red on his face, the red light on his face. Red light on his face. And then that's the last we're going to see of Travis Bickle. Mm -hmm. And then we have just really beautiful shots of the streets of New York. Yeah. As we hear this music. Mm hmm. So, first, let me tell you about the musical sting, and then we can Please talk do. about what this means. So, Bernard Herman recorded a he said you know they said we want one more sting for this moment bernard hurtman recorded it and uh 
and Scorsese didn't like it Oof. and said, yeah, I don't, I don't really, it's not intense enough. It's too normal. And Herman, who sounds like he was pretty gruff, said, ah, oh, just play it backwards. And that is what it is. It's that musical sting played backwards. You hear it's played backwards. And that is the last piece of music yeah. Bernard Herman ever recorded, right. that sting. What do you think it means? I fucking love this moment. And I'm sorry <laughs> to cuss so hard. But it's taxi driver. Yeah. But these, okay. these genuine moments, these like brilliant, brilliantly artistic moments in film that are quick to me are gold. They're diamonds. They're treasures because in the right hands of a right filmmaker, they mean so much, which is this whole fairy tale ending. Is it real? Is it not real? I don't know. The letters, I don't know any, if any of that is real, right? Let's say it is real. And everything worked out, right? He's back driving a cab again. God knows why he's driving a cab again. He killed a gangster, an Italian gangster. And apparently they don't. nobody wants revenge on him for it, sure. uh, which is an insane stretch of the imagination to think that's believable. And then he gets in the cab, and she knows exactly which cab to get in. Interesting. Sits in the cab, drives... He's all in Paris, very comfortable, he's calm. He's the, he's, the, he's the guy who's like in charge. Then when she, you think he's this noble knight, he's gone through his hell, his like trial by fire, and he's come out the other side. And that flash shows you that that evil Bickle is still in there. And that's what that is to me. It shows me that no matter how sweet or normal he is, there is that underbelly of uh, anger at the world that will never go away. And it's schizophrenic. It's it's almost yeah. schizophrenic, an illusion. Because he has this other side of him that is darker and more violent and more angry that will always be below this bubbling below the surface. No matter how sweet of a hero he's turned out to be because he wasn't heroic necessarily. No. And so uh, the papers may have turned him into a hero, but he knows who he really is. Well... I don't know if he knows who he really is, but I totally agree. That mm-hmm. moment is to say, no, no, he's still Travis Bickle. Uh-huh. Nothing's changed. Uh-huh. He might be having a moment of stability and control and, right. and, and calm, but that's just the calm before the storm. He is who he is. And I just yeah. wonder if the studio said to Scorsese, you got to put a happy ending on this thing. And he's like, oh, I'll give you a fucking happy ending. But I, I don't know. a little bit something to It's a good question. It would have really been great. Question. No, it's an interesting. It's a, it. it's a very unsettling place to end that movie. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, it's not knowable. We don't really get to know. Yeah, and I never ever want to see Taxi Driver two. I never ever want to see sequel Travis Bickle, De Niro doing Travis Bickle now at like seventy years old. No, because I'm sure they've come with course, ideas for course. Taxi Driver two. And I'm sure there's been a briefcase full of money. <laughs> um, two or three. Do you happen to have final thoughts on Taxi Driver? Yeah, I would just say this: if you haven't visited this movie in a while maybe you've been afraid to see it maybe like me maybe even nervous to kind of walk back into this world if you've gotten on a little bit older in years from the last time you saw it i would encourage you to watch it again especially in light of where our world is now and the things that we've seen and experienced and the changes that have happened in the world um you might find yourself un, uh, uncomfortably understanding bick a little, a little bit more than you did before um, and finding some compassion for him while still maintaining the belief that what he did was wrong and shouldn't have done the things that he did. But I think the film also is an incredible exploration of the uncomfortable things that we may feel at times and don't act on them, but we certainly think them sometimes and are afraid to explore 
the darker sides of our nature. And I think that's what this film really does for you. It allows you to explore it without you having to actually explore it within yourself. And that's the mark of a great movie. I think one of the things that Travis does is he divides the world up in a very black and white way. Mm. He sees it as, you know, as you said at the very beginning, this is knights in shining armor and wizards and dragons and evil and good. Mm -hmm. And I think we all have a tendency to do that. We hear about a certain behavior or we hear about a certain person that does a certain kind of thing and we go, oh, well, that person's evil. And I think that is a dangerous fiction Mm -hmm. to walk around with. And I think it's good, not all the time, but some of the time, to go into a movie that forces you to look at things in a way that you didn't look at them before. Mm-hmm. It forces you to look at the world through the eyes of someone like Travis Bickle and actually sympathize with this person yeah. who is not actually, who's a person that's kind of scary, mm-hmm. you know, and yet we're kind of with them and kind of enjoy them, mm-hmm. even when we're watching them do some things that are pretty despicable, Yeah, you know, and I think... That helps us to see the world uh, in a different way, in a more nuanced way, in a more sympathetic way, and maybe in a way that will help us to solve some of these problems. Because really, as we see in the world, as we talked about with mass shootings, yeah. this isn't going away. Yeah. And we're not gonna we're not going to solve any of it by going, oh, those are bad guys. Mm-hmm. That's not the point. That doesn't help us. we got to understand what is making a person go into a room and do a thing like that and this movie made in 1976 before they had the term PTSD before all these mass shootings. I mean, there've been a couple of mass shootings, but not right. many right. before all that was happening, man, it seems like it has some deep insight into the way the mind works. And what's interesting to me about it is the only way they get deep insight is if Paul Schrader and Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese had been there yeah. to some degree. Mm-hmm. You own, you can't have the insight unless you've been there. It's too truthful, too real. It's too real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what we think about Taxi Driver. As always, we definitely want to hear what you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page at The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, on YouTube, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, on Spotify. <laughs> you can review, leave reviews or comments at a whole bunch of those places. We love reading them. They really help us on iTunes. They help us on Spotify. They're fun to look at on uh, YouTube. Yeah. We really enjoy them. If you want to suggest a film you can go on patreon.com just like Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. We got a whole bunch of films coming up that came from our Patreon subscribers. We really appreciate them. That's patreon.com slash the cinephiles. If you haven't seen Taxi Driver yet and you want to buy it, the 40th anniversary Blu-ray is really, really good and it's available for purchase on our <laughs> website at cinephiles.net as are every movie we've ever reviewed. And if you want to reach out to me, you can find me at SR Morris on Twitter. John, where can they find you? <laughs> They could find me not buying the 40th anniversary of this film. Although now, having seen it this morning, I think I might buy it. Actually, jokingly enough, like because I might want to see the behind, watch the behind the scenes and it's special a lot features of good stuff on. It. Oh, that's a, I'm gonna buy it then, uh, and I will actually go through our uh, our our uh, because link. We will, if you do that, yeah. we will make like 17 cents, <laughs> and we will split that Hey-o. evenly. Thank I don't you. know who gets the half penny. We'll that's, figure it out. That's fine. I'll get some chuckles with it. But okay, <laughs> uh, you guys can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram and. This has been an enjoyable episode for me to do because this was a film I was so, so dreading. And to have it turn out in such a positive way, uh, an enjoyable way, uh, was a lot of fun. So, Well, I'm glad you had fun, and I hope that everyone listening had fun. I definitely had fun. And that is it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles.